Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 33 and verses 7 to 23. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. It's very wonderful to be here with you at Forward. Last time I was ministering to some of you would have been about 11 or 12 years ago when Hugh Palmer was the vicar, and I did a weekend for you at Swanwick, and I think we took Ephesians, and it was then a marvelous time, but I can remember further back still, 1985, on a mission with Billy Graham uh, in Sheffield, and I came to part of that, uh, which was wonderfully chaired by your Philip Hacking. Well, today, I've chosen the book of Exodus, chapter 33, as a golden passage. In any phase with the adventure for God. Whether facing a new appointment in the workplace or a new student year, an impending marriage or the start of a fresh program in the life of any church. Page 92 we are. Here in our passage it was a journey about to be embarked on by Moses and his people towards the central fertile uplands of Canaan and the Promised Land. 
Have the Bible open. It's such a help to the preacher when he comes among people he doesn't know very well. To feel that they're also making the sermon. We get the Bibles open, page 92. And here we are, Exodus 33. And to start with, verse 14. Where the Lord God tells his servant Moses, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. That was the issue. The promised land. However, to gain entrance, there are times in life when you could wish for an escort to get you in. We were talking about uh, tennis a moment ago in our little interview. Well, I remember a time years ago when an American pastor rang me. I'd stayed with him once in America. He rang to say, I'm coming to Britain for one day only. Never been to Britain before. What can I do? I said, I'll be your host. I'll be your escort. What would you like to do? Well, he said, more than anything else, more than even seeing the crown jewels, I would like to see the center court at Wimbledon's tennis. I said, leave it to me. I know a man. And the man was then the CEO of Wimbledon. Chris Gorringe, who I'd sort of somehow got to know over the years. So I rang Wimbledon and they said, yes, Mr. Gorringe, we'll meet with you next Wednesday, the Fred Perry Gates, and you can bring your American with you. Well, we did, and we had a wonderful time. Mr. Gorringe showed us the trophies, showed us all the rooms, the changing rooms, everything, then led us onto the center court. The American was in heaven. May I stand on the court, he said. And Mr. Gorringe said, yes, you can. So he stood, and then Chris Gorin said, you couldn't have done that if you hadn't been with me, but the groundsman saw that you were with me, and they turned off the alarm that otherwise goes off when any unauthorized person steps on the center court. But you were with me, it was all right. They'd just been cutting the grass on the center court. It was then September. I said to the American, come on, let's fill our pockets with the sacred grass from the wheelbarrows, which we did out for... Weeks afterwards, I was giving little matchboxes away full of grass to my friends. (laughs) Well, you see, when I consider that little episode, it occurs to me as a Christian that it makes all the difference in life itself to have the right escort. Oh, not just to the center court of tennis, but to the central courts of power in the entire universe. To maintain direction, energy for the next year, the next assignment. Or, as in the case of Moses and the people of God, a secure accompanying presence to guarantee a safe arrival. Exodus 33. It begins with a crisis because there's a real possibility that the people were going to have to undertake their momentous journey without the reassuring presence of God himself. Delivered under Moses' leadership from oppression in Egypt, They've left the Red Sea. They've had bread from heaven, water from the rock. They've seen off the Amalekites and the ten mighty commandments have been given them at Mount Sinai. Then came the catastrophic blip. Moses was still up the mountain when the people below broke out into idolatrous orgies and the blasphemous worship of a golden calf. So our chapter picks up with the distraught Moses back again on the mountain and with the Lord directing him to begin the long wilderness journey to the promised land but without the assurance of his accompanying presence. 
I'm looking at verse, verse 3 of Exodus 33. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Words gets to the people, not coming with us. This is calamity. As for Moses, the prospect is an impossibility. Verse 15. Then Moses said to the Lord, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, if you're not coming with us, we might as well stay and die here. We'll have no identity at all as a people if you're not with us. Moses, for his part, knew the great difference between the presence and the absence of the right person to escort a collection of God's people as they face the future. And do we, in the church at large, Surely the presence of the Lord here, well, at Christ church, or in any church, provides the only validation of our authenticity as a church, the sole guarantee of a safe passage through, well, you know what your local testings would be here, to say nothing of the wider destructive secularism, psychic epidemics that sweep the world, relentless hostility to Christ, that rampage all around our Western world today. So is God with us, because without him, there can never be a sure arrival. And so in anything that's done for God, to take the divine presence out of the operation is to kill it. Hence the importance of the reassurance eventually given to the trembling Moses. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. One of the great first leaders of Christianity after the apostles was Ignatius, the second bishop of Antioch. He was reputed to have known the apostle John. Ignatius died as a martyr under the Roman imperial rule of Trajan in the year 107 AD. Ignatius was so concerned to have God with him in every action that those who knew him gave him the title the God-bearer. And when the emperor Trajan asked him Dost thou then bear the crucified one in thy heart? His answer was, even so, for it is written, I will dwell in them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's Ignatius, the God-bearer. That can be the title of any believer. Maybe somebody's new here. Maybe you're a new believer, just started. That's you already, a God-bearer. To go into that place of work, to open its doors and to mingle with those colleagues, those student friends, or those families down the road, and to be a God-bearer among them? Maybe there aren't enough of us who seem to be aware of such an honor. Those who teach and train others, or who have that awesome responsibility of bringing up young lives in a family, we dare not undertake such work on our own. And then it's good for an entire fellowship at this particular landmark of the year for you to ask that question, do we know the great difference between the presence and the absence of God? And perhaps as a second 
question to face us as we meditate on this passage. It's this. Are we on speaking terms with God? Moses evidently was. All this section of the book of Exodus, ever since chapters 19 and 20, finds Moses up on the mountain in the thick darkness, receiving his instructions and acting as a go-between on behalf of God's people. But of course, that was a one-off. It was unusual. A time of special briefing before a great undertaking. What was the norm? I think the norm was at the foot of the mountain. In what is really a parenthesis in verses 7 and actually 11. Look at it. Now Moses, it says, used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away. This is at the foot of the mountain. Calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Verse 9, as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Well, this was the everyday routine of the regular camp life. When you're off the mountaintop and you're having your daily time with the Lord. We might even have called it Moses' quiet time. And then... Who is this Lord with whom Moses meets face to face, as verse 11 tells us, in terms of a man speaking with his friend? After all, only a few verses further on, when Moses is back up the mountain again, the Lord is saying to him in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Well, sometimes our Muslim friends will chide Christians on this very passage And they'll say, your book has become so corrupted. Here is your God whose face can be seen. But then, next, whose face cannot be seen. You're in such a muddle about your God. But then we have to answer that, quite unwittingly, our questioners have stumbled on an exciting pointer to the truth of the Trinity. There's the Lord of verse 11, with whom Moses spoke face to face. And then... On the mountain, the Lord of verse 20, whose face cannot be seen. No, it's not a Bible contradiction. It's one of innumerable signposts to the Trinity. So, on numbers of occasions in the Old Testament, the Lord makes himself visible. As, for example, when that fourth person joins Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. Somebody divine often called the angel of the Lord, not necessarily an angel of the Lord, but when it's the angel of the Lord, he always seems to have divine characteristics. As in Judges chapter 21 and 22, when Manoah, having been confronted by somebody called the angel of the Lord, that is, the sent one, he realizes the divine nature of his visitor. And he says to his wife, we're doomed to die. We've seen God. He then has to be reassured. Or in Genesis 32, verse 30, when Jacob, having wrestled with a man all night, acknowledges next morning that, I quote, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. There's no inconsistency. The truth of the scriptures about the Father is indeed there. In John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time the only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. Thus it's the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity 
who is being manifested, it seems to me, when Moses meets with the Lord down at the foot of the mountain, face to face in the camp tent. Now, Jesus never began halfway through history, as some think. He is the sent one, part of the eternal Godhead. He is the executive of the Godhead. And we get these and other fascinating glimpses of him throughout the Old Testament. Actually, we even get appointed to the person and the divinity of the Holy Spirit himself, who only a few pages on is said to equip the people of God, and who is also stated to be, and I quote, the Lord. Bible students here can follow that up in Exodus 35, verse 30 and 31, and in chapter 36, verse 1. So, back to the pre-incarnate second person. Exodus 33, verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Or we could turn to Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, where the Lord says about Moses, with him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord, end quote. Then this tent of Moses, that's not the tabernacle, which was to be constructed later on as the Israeli worship tent, No, this is simply a tent of meeting. Moses uses it for his daily times with the Lord, fellowshipping face to face with him. And he also uses it, verse 7, as a kind of counselling centre. Well, in this daily and regular way, as contrasted with the dramatic mountaintop experiences, Moses seems to be on speaking terms with the Lord. And that must be our second big issue facing any church that aspires to be authentic. In our New Testament era, hey, with all the privileges of Calvary, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost behind us, can a church be said to be on speaking terms with God? (coughs) Well, listen, the surefire barometer of the health of any church lies not in the size of its Sunday congregation, but in the strength of its prayer meeting. So we hear a prayer meeting be announced on that Wednesday. That's the strength. That will show the strength of the church, always, always. That gives the true picture. What's the prayer doing? And the same holds true on the individual level. That daily tent of meeting, why? It can be your own bedroom. With the Bible speaking to us, the message of Jesus... And prayer being our way of response as we get ready for a new day of companionship with our God. So if we're wanting to be effective in our service of Jesus, we need to spend time with Jesus. And then it is in the big overall challenges of life with God that we can lay hold of the Lord's reassurance to Moses there in verse 14. Because he eventually says, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Rest? Moses might have wondered. Rest? With this great journey about to begin? With battles and traumas ahead? Hostile borders to negotiate? Yes. And we could add today, for us, the swirling life of modern society to contend with. The secularism. The frenzies of the media the paranoid world of the money markets, the violence, the me culture, the madness of political correctness, 
the pulling down of the rock face of marriage, the challenge of alien belief systems, the rise of conceited atheistic writers, the harassing of the church on virtually every public front, morally, educationally, doctrinally, yes, and at times even from within our own ranks. I sometimes feel like David when he wrote in Psalm 118, they came about me like bees. It seems, dear friend, rest. Well, when the Bible speaks about rest in this way, it's speaking not so much of escape, of rest from the struggles and buffetings, but of rest in all the taxing exertion. It's in the spending time with the Lord in that Moses-like way that the, refresh, the rest and refreshment can be found, no matter how busy the schedule. Of course, mums and dads here may find that they have to reapportion their times with God somewhat. When getting their children up in the morning, getting them their breakfast, stuffing them into their clothes. There can be periods when those times with the Lord seem completely torpedoed. One understands that. Mind you, my wife Pam and I are dealing more with grandchildren than children these days. So when we wake in the morning, we often murmur to each other, another day of adventure on planet Earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, our day of adventure begins rather pathetically usually with a cup of tea. And, uh, but then you think about it. As you head down towards the kitchen to get that cup of tea, you're saying to yourself, in 10 minutes' time, I am going to be having a meeting by arrangement with the Lord Jesus Christ. By arrangement. Much stronger than just saying, oh, shall we turn to the Bible? We might have a bit. No, by arrangement. Lovers do that. Down in London, what would they say? They'd say, I'll meet you at the uh, Statue of Eros um, on Wednesday afternoon. Well, we can do that with God. Make an arrangement. It's far stronger to do it that way. We can all work at that. One of the busiest men, perhaps the greatest even, of the 18th century, was the evangelist John Wesley. Travelling on horseback, the equivalent of 10 times round the world, preaching some 40,000 times, and leaving his stamp upon the whole of our culture. Writing to a friend, John Smith, Wesley once wrote this, Whenever I see one or a thousand men running into hell, be it in England, Ireland, or France, yea, in Europe, Asia, Africa, or America, I will stop them if I can. But though I am always in haste, I'm never in a hurry, because I never undertake any more work than I can go through with perfect calmness of spirit. That's Wesley. Wesley may sometimes have had his quiet time on horseback, I guess. This tent of meeting, privately, but also as a church, that seems to be the major secret of resting amid great activity. And that makes up our second question. The first, remember, do we know the difference between the presence and the absence of God? And then the second one, are we on speaking terms with God? Here's a third question. Can we see, can we see the face of God? Three questions, and really they all amount to the same issue. But here it is thirdly. Can we see the face of God? That's what Moses is asking here. 
back up the mountain again. When he begs the Lord, show me your glory. I want to see it. And I think the implication is that just as in the tent of meeting below, he'd like to be confronted face to face with the glory of the Lord directly up there in the mountain. Well, the Lord gives him several assurances that he will make his goodness pass in front of Moses to proclaim to him his name. But look at verse 20. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live, because the sight would be too overwhelming. But then comes a provision in verse 21. Look, and the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So face to face at the foot of the mountain, but on the top of the mountain, you cannot see my face. And yet, as he puts it in the, the King James Version, there is a place by me. And Moses looks, and there before him is a rock. Rocks intersperse the adventures of Moses. There's water from the rock. Moses sits on a rock as he intercedes with God in his battle with the Amalekites. Now he's to stand on a rock and be hidden in its cleft as the glory of God passes by. These rocks, why they amount to one and the same thing. The New Testament puts it clearly for us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. There is a place by me. The truth lay there. If you were in that right place, you would see something of the glory of God. Let me illustrate from Africa. The most wonderful thing I ever saw in the whole of my life was the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. It's the deepest of all the waterfalls in the world. It's also the widest, a mile across, a mile across. And when somebody said to me, if you stand here, come to this bit, stand on this rock, you'll see something. I stood there, there were rainbows all around me. It was glory. I found it hard to come away. Can that happen to us in a certain measure? Yes. Provided Christ is with us in that special cleft. You can have a bunch of students sitting in a little one-room bed sit on a strip of carpet. Somebody opens up a can of Coke. Out comes the Bible. And you can have glory in that room. It's something about the magnetic presence of Christ because he ultimately is the rock. And I want to be right there with him. Nothing else matters. Here in Exodus 33, Moses is directed to this great rock where he can be exposed to God's glory. No, it's not the full glory he experiences. It's the rear guard of God's glory that he sees. Simply the afterglow. But that's enough for him. And it's enough for us. There is a place by me. The secret lies in seeing the face of God ultimately in Christ himself. I give you 2 Corinthians 4, 
and verse 6, where we read, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's indeed how we see the face of God today. People sometimes say, I can't see where Jesus fits in. It's one of our old souls illustrations, I think, Paul. But I can't see where Jesus fits in. And God, yeah, I can understand. Where does Jesus fit in? Well, it was that great Christian leader, Athanasius, Egyptian-born and Greek-trained, who gave us an answer 1,600 years ago. He said, the only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one in which he is the starting point. That's it. Come to John's Gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's the name for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning, with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You start with Jesus. Otherwise, if you don't, you'll always be in a muddle. You'll be like, well, it's like the other day when I was trying to put on my shirt, and I started doing up the buttons, beginning with the wrong button. Have you ever done that? And as you do them up, you think, well, I'll just keep going. It may work out. No, it'll never work out. It'll never work out. The man or woman who doesn't start with Jesus will always be in a muddle about the universe, about life itself, God, the existence, where they're going, where they're from, always. No, it's Christ who's the thrilling fulfillment of God's promise of an accompanying presence in everything that you and I are touching during the course, hey, of this autumn ahead. Moses' great concern was expressed in verse 12 of our chapter when he said, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Ah, he'd had all these amazing experiences. The bush that burned, the sea that parted, the bread that rained down, the rock that split, the mountain that shook. But ultimately, all those happenings, together with the rituals and the miracles, Ten Commandments, all the experiences that we, that you, as a church, could ever try to collect, they amount to nothing without the person. Without the person. If Christ is there, then you can expect a whole church to be lit up. I'll give an illustration from Harold Wood, Paul Williams was there working years ago. and I worked there as vicar many years ago at St. Peter's Harold Wood. We did a guest night, I remember, one night. And as part of it, uh, I asked the church treasurer, Peter Haig, a short man with specs, to get up and just give his little account of how he came to faith. He'd never done it before in his life. He'd never done it, attempted it. He did it that night. And while I was preaching, I remember... Looking at a man who I spied by one of the pillars, I thought, I've met him before. He is a very formidable, hard-nosed agnostic. I remember meeting him outside in another situation and thinking, oh, I can't get near you. And there he was in church. A colleague had brought him along to that guest service. Well, next day I heard from somebody that that man, the deputy headmaster he was, had accepted Christ into his life. I couldn't believe it. But two days later, I met with a man. Well, he said, yes, it's happened. He said, it wasn't, it wasn't your sermon. People often say that to we preachers. It wasn't your sermon so much. But he said, that man you got up to the front 
As he was speaking about his experience, I could feel the whole congregation pulling for him silently, wanting him to do well. He said, I'd never met a dimension like that in any group of people I'd ever seen before. And that's what got to my heart. He went on to become church warden eventually. So, may we apply that? When Christ is in the center of a congregation, when prayer is going on, we can expect that meeting of the congregation to be irradiated with the presence of Jesus Christ. You may not feel it, but a newcomer coming in will feel it instantly. You can't manufacture it. It doesn't just happen. But if Christ is there at the center, we can expect things to happen. That's why it seems to be important at the start of a new phase for this beloved and honored church of yours to ask ourselves the question, do we understand the great differences between the presence and the absence of God? Are we on speaking terms with him, both individually and as a fellowship? Can we see the face of God? What place does Christ occupy among us all? And the answer to all that lies, as my American tennis friend found out, is in being with the right person when we can say, I know a man. And therefore, in our case, for a church to be known as a God-bearer within an entire region, to be in that regular tent of meeting, and to heed the call from the mountain, there is a place by me. And thus to be followed and accompanied by the rock that is a person. And then, whatever else may lie ahead of us, Nothing else matters. May you all stay under the power of heaven as September and October get underway.